Well, welcome to our second class on the topic of how we got our Bible. Uh, there was a handout uh, by the, the front there. Hopefully we've got enough. Uh, I had a little printing glitch yesterday, so I printed off as many as I could uh, before that happened. Uh, last week we began to answer this question that, that we're having in this class. How did we get our Bible? And we talked about how we're, we're starting by looking at what the Bible says about itself. And so we're, we're answering this question in biblical theological ways. What does the Bible say? And then how do we, how do we summarize that? And we considered first that the Bible is inspired. And this means that the Bible is a divine book. Uh, it, is of, it is of divine origin. And it is written in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And even though the, the process of inspiration is not always explained in detail in Scripture, uh, that process we know involved humans. And involved a variety of humans with different personalities and styles, but all being directed by God's Spirit in such a way that what they wrote was actually the words of God. And the, the upshot of all that we talked about <clears throat> is that we can rejoice that we can truly know God's mind, right? God's not speaking in a secret way that we can't know. He's come to us speaking our language. He's spoken plainly. And when we encounter God's word, we ought to respond with humility and submission because God's word is authoritative, because God is our creator. He's our master. He's our ruler overall, and this is his word. So that's what we talked about last week, especially focusing on inspiration. Today, we want to talk about some related things, some closely related things, and we want to look at the nature of the Bible. Uh, so inspiration addresses the origin of the Bible, right? so it's from God through people. Uh, but now we want to look biblically and theologically of the, the nature of that book. And it's connected to its origin, right, as a divine book. And so the nature of the Bible is communicated in some loaded phrases and words uh, that are nicely summarized in our statement of faith. So if you have your handouts, um, in the top left there, I've, I've provided Article 1 from our statement of faith, which says this. We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. So we, we talked about several of those things last week, particularly focusing on inspiration. And this morning, uh, we'll see how far we get, right? Um, but I want to I talk about verbal inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. And all of each of those words or terms are used in our statement of faith. And even though we don't find those words specifically in the Bible, uh, those words describe what we find in the Bible, right? So if you flip through your Bible, you're not going to read a verse that says God's word is inerrant and infallible, but we find what those words mean are in Scripture. So we're going to start by talking about verbal inspiration. Our statement of faith says that the Holy Scriptures were verbally inspired. Now, this just simply means that it was the words and all of the words that are from God. Right? The, the Bible doesn't just contain uh, God's thoughts, and it doesn't just contain God's words. The Bible is God's thoughts. The Bible is God's words. Uh, and the Bible isn't inspired in part with a mixture of some human wisdom, um, it is God's word through and through, from front to back and top to bottom. 
So the, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that it's the very words and all of the words that are from God. So I think I've provided some of these passages, some of these references for you in your handouts. Matthew 4.4, 4, we looked at this last week. Jesus says, uh, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, which says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then in Acts 24.14, Paul is explaining his ministry, and he, confess, he says, I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So he doesn't say, you know, I, well, I believe some of it. He says we believe all of the things that are written in it. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So again, it's, it's not just the ideas that are divine, but it's the words. And it's not some of the words, it's all of them. Um, I have provided, this wasn't available for you when you all walked in, but when you walk out, uh, there's, a, there's an extra handout in the back, and I don't have nearly enough for all of you, so if, if they're gone, just let me know and I can get you a copy. It is um, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Did I provide this in a handout? I provided some statements, I, I, I believe. Uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy happened in, I believe, 1978. It was a, a conference of theologians that got together because there uh, was uh, increasing amount of skepticism about scripture in the United States. Uh, and people who would say that they believed in the Bible and that they believed in God's word, but they didn't, they didn't believe in it in the way that, that we see scripture explaining itself. And so they got together to uh, solidify what we believe about scripture. It's a very helpful document. So I, I'm going to reference it a few times this morning, and I've got a full copy in the back um, for those of you who are interested. They say on this topic, in Article 6, they say, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. Uh, so this is what we mean by verbal inspiration, that it's the words that are inspired and it's all the words that are inspired. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute, there's some mistakes that we can make in regards to our view of Scripture, and we'll talk a little bit about why this is important uh, in, in just a few minutes. So I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to talk about inerrancy and infallibility, and then I'll pause for any questions you might have. So inerrancy. Our statement of faith says that the scriptures are inerrant in the original writings. We'll talk about the original writings next week, Lord willing, but right now we're going to focus on inerrancy, and inerrancy means that scripture is true in all that it says. So inerrancy is about the truthfulness of scripture. Inerrancy means that the Bible is truthful in all that it says. So again, the Chicago statement is very helpful. In point four, they say, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So among other things there, you can see how you know, the truthfulness of Scripture is connected to the inspiration of Scripture. If this is God's word, it must be truthful, right? Um, they're connected. So they say again in, that, in the Chicago statement, they say, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. So again, the connection is that if the Bible is God's word and God cannot lie, 
then the Bible is truthful in all that it says, right? So this is one among many passages that address this. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. So, uh, and this is a fascinating verse. We don't have time to get into all of it, but that's coming from the, wi- the lips of wicked Balaam uh, through whom God is speaking, right? And he's saying, God cannot lie. Um, so God is not a liar. God always tells the truth. And since the Bible is God's word, then scripture always tells the truth. And again, this is, this is inerrancy. is just how scripture presents itself. Scripture presents itself as truth, right? So familiar verse, John 17, 17. Jesus prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So scripture presents itself as being God's word and as such presents itself as being wholly true. Last thing that we want to note uh, here is uh, infallibility, this term infallibility, uh, which again is, is used in our statement of faith and it's a useful term and it's connected to everything we've been talking about. Infallibility means that the scripture will not guide us into error. So inerrancy has to do with the scripture telling the truth. Infallibility means it's trustworthy. We can trust God's word. God's word is not going to lead us astray. Right? So when the Bible says that we should not lie, we don't have to wonder if maybe there's sometimes when lying would actually be better for us. You know, God's word steers us correctly. It will not lead us astray. So again, the, the scripture presents itself as totally trustworthy. Uh, that important passage in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, says that the, the Bible is inspired and it's able to make us wise unto salvation. And that scripture is sufficient to make us thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So Paul is telling Timothy that scripture as God's word is a reliable guide for him. And then Jesus and the apostles, they regularly appeal to the trustworthiness of Scripture as a reliable guide. So when Jesus gets into religious debates with his enemies, they're trying to attack him. Uh, In John 10, for instance, Jesus, he quotes the Psalms. And then he quotes the Psalms, arguing that Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, he's relying on Scripture and saying, Scripture is a reliable guide for us. It won't lead us astray, and so we rely on it. We trust it. And uh, Jesus didn't only trust Scripture in connection with doctrine or teaching, but he also trusted Scripture as reliable in matters of history, right? So in Matthew 19, he's talking about marriage and divorce, and he reasons from verse 4 saying, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus here, he's reading Genesis as historically reliable and trustworthy. And this is an important point that, uh, that applies to both of these things we've been talking about, inerrancy and infallibility, that scripture tells the truth and is trustworthy in all that it addresses. So some would say that scripture is only reliable in matters of faith, but that there could be some historical mistakes in it. Some people might say that. But we believe that all the words are from God, and so even the historical claims are true and reliable. Another way that these doctrines can be attacked 
is to say that the, the human authors were distorted by their culture, right? So we're actually going to see this this morning. Pastor John is starting a series in the book of Romans. In the very first chapter of Romans, Paul identifies homosexuality as sin. And many today would say that Paul, when he talks about homosexuality as sin, is just influenced by his culture, that, that his thinking and his writing about that is being distorted by the culture that he's in. But we would understand that that minimizes God's role in writing scripture, and that because those words, too, are from God, that they're true, and that they're trustworthy for us, and they're reliable. So again, the, that Chicago statement has a really helpful quote here. It says, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or limitedness or fallenness of these writers by necessity or otherwise introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. That's just another way of saying that the Bible is reliable and it's trustworthy in all that it speaks to and all that it addresses, whether that's doctrine or whether that's historical things. So here I'm going to pause. I've kind of opened the fire hydrant on uh, trying to, to clarify and explain some of these words and terms that we have in our statement of faith uh, that, are, that are crucial for our understanding of what scripture is. And what we're going to do next for the rest of our time, Lord willing, is we're going to pivot to look at some of the implications of this and some different mistakes that we can make in our approach to Scripture, especially in relation to these doctrines. But I'm going to pause now if you have any questions or need any clarification about these doctrines as such. That's a great question. Judy's asking who is involved in writing the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Uh, I don't know all the people. There were about 100 people, uh, maybe more, who were involved in it. I can find the answer to that and, and try to get that to you. It's a good question. All right, so let's pivot now and look at some of the ways uh, that we can make mistakes in thinking about and applying these doctrines, right? So it's always a good question to ask whenever we're studying the Bible or thinking uh, about theology and doctrine to ask the question, so what, right? So these are, these are um, in some ways kind of heady intellectual things that are very important that we believe and affirm them, but so what? What do these, th these things mean for us? So uh, there's probably plenty of ways we could take this, but I'm gonna take us in three directions. Mistake number one, is, particularly in relation to these doctrines, is that we could bring assumptions about truth-telling to the text so that we could mistake differences for errors or contradictions, right? So we can, we can make assumptions about contradictions in the Bible. Several years ago, in a prior job, I met a new coworker, and he found out that I was going to seminary and that I wanted to be a pastor. I was studying the Bible, and he said to me, right away, I think it was the first time I met him, he said, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? And what do you say when somebody says that? 
What's that, Chuck? Yeah, Chuck's got a great way to answer this question. He said uh, that you can ask them to show you uh, what contradictions they're talking about, and that's basically what I did. Uh, I asked him, I said, he said, what about all those contradictions? And I said, what contradictions? And he didn't have any in mind. Um, you know, so there's just, generally speaking, there's plenty of people who just assume that the Bible has contradictions in it. Um, and so that's a, that's a helpful way to just kind of narrow down our focus. Now, just because somebody says that doesn't mean that they might not have an answer when you ask them. Uh, so when I was in high school, I was hanging out with some of my peers, and uh, somebody, again, mentioned contradictions in the Bible, and I asked them what they are talking about, and this person said, oh, well, uh, there's two different ways that Judas dies in the Bible. And uh, at the time, I, I didn't know about this. And so I, I didn't have a great way of addressing this. Here's what she was talking about. In Matthew 27, verse 5, says, And he cast down, Judas, cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. Okay? Well, then in Acts, it's written by a different author, right? Acts is written by Luke. In Acts 1.18, it says, now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. Ew, that's gross. Well, which is it? What happened? Was he hanged, or did he fall and burst apart? Well, the simple answer to this particular issue is that it's not an either-or. Right? It's a both and here. Judas, very likely, what happened is he, he hanged himself and then he fell and burst apart. Um, and there are many, many examples. We're not going to go into them right now. Might bring some more up later in the class. Uh, but there are plenty of examples in Scripture where somebody could take you to a particular passage and say, well, look, it says this here and it says that there. Um, and so we can bring some of our assumptions to the text and think, well, wait a minute. Uh, somebody's not telling the truth here. Well, what's going on regularly in the Gospels and in Acts is that the authors are writing in such a way not merely to communicate kind of a, a record of events that we might read in a modern newspaper, but they're also trying to draw our attention to things, uh, to meaning that they want to draw out. So, you know, what's beautiful about this particular instance um, is that Matthew and Luke, I think, have God-directed purposes in emphasizing what they are emphasizing about Judas's death. I just read an article about this last week that talked about how uh, Matthew is likely identifying Judas with Absalom, who was hanged, and uh, Luke is likely showing that Judas is like Ahab, who, uh, who died in a field and who bought a field with iniquity. Um, if you're interested in that article, you can come see me afterwards and I can send it to you. But there's plenty of kind of resources out there that if somebody brings a contradiction to you, you don't have to be afraid, right? These doctrines about inerrancy and infallibility, that God's word is true and it's trustworthy, don't need to make us nervous about contradictions. It gives us great confidence that, that something, uh, that there is an explanation. We can know what's going on. So, in regards to contradictions, I'm pretty sure I put this in your handout, uh, that one good resource for you is to go to answersingenesis.org slash contradictions in the Bible. And they have several articles about alleged contradictions, and they explain what's going on in those various passages. Uh, yes, Aaron. Yep. 
so Aaron's just pointing out that in the Gospels we see similar things, pointing out different elements of Jesus' life, even things in different orders, right? So the temptation of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the order of the temptations is different than they are in Luke's Gospel. And in Matthew, it culminates with Satan offering him all the kingdoms of the earth. And in Luke's Gospel, it culminates with Jesus uh, being at the temple. And Luke has a focus on Christ's priestly work and on the temple. And Matthew has an emphasis on the kingdom. And so we kind of see how they, they arrange things to show their emphasis and their priority. They're not contradicting one another. Yeah. Uh, there are other kinds of mistakes that, that we can have when we approach these things. Um, and uh, Wayne Grudem, who's a, a theologian, speaks helpfully about this issue. He says that the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech, right? So the Bible uh, talks about the sun rising in Judges chapter 5, verse 31. And the Bible says a lot of other things about the earth, that it cannot be moved. And for a long time, uh, in medieval times, uh, there was a belief that the earth was at the center of everything and that the earth didn't move, right? So uh, teens and adults, if you remember, this is geocentrism, right? And then there was the Copernican revolution, and now we understand that the sun is in the center of the universe. Well, we understand that when the Bible speaks about the sun rising, it's not... It's not giving kind of a technical explanation of astronomy. Uh, it's just speaking in normal, everyday speech. And this applies similarly when we look at uh, some of the numbers in the Bible, right? So we understand sometimes in Scripture, the authors are, are giving estimates, and we don't need to assume that they're giving like the exact nailed-down number, right? So when it says that Jesus fed 5,000, maybe it was 4,998. We don't have to be worried that Matthew might be lying if he's off a little bit. And we see this specifically in uh, the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, 13. God tells Abraham that his descendants will be in Egypt for 400 years. And then in Exodus 12, it says that they were in Egypt for 430 years. Oh no, is there, is there a contradiction? Is somebody wrong? Well, Scripture just speaks in normal, everyday language, right? It, it can give estimates sometimes. So if I told my connection group that we were meeting at my house and that I live 15 minutes away from church, uh, am, I, am I lying if we live 13 minutes away from church? Or if I said, if I was really careful and I said, yeah, we live 13 minutes away from church, am I lying if we live 13 minutes and 42 seconds away from church? You know, in normal everyday speech, we, we can estimate things, and, and we understand what we're doing, right? We understand how we're talking. And so the biblical authors, they, they, they show us their purpose, right? And they show us how they're communicating, and sometimes uh, they estimate things, and we don't need to worry that somehow they're making an error or a mistake. Uh, they're just speaking in normal, everyday speech. They're speaking truthfully, and that's what inerrancy is about. Inerrancy is about speaking truthfully. Inerrancy does not tell us uh, it does not require of the biblical authors a certain level of specificity, right? So another quick example is in 1 Kings 7, verse 23, it talks about the basin that uh, Solomon made in the temple, and it says that it was 10 cubits across in diameter. And then if you remember how to figure out a circumference, I had to Google this, if you remember how to figure out a circumference, kids, you know that you take the diameter and you multiply it by pi. What's pi? 3.14 what? Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. So in 1 Kings 7, 
you know, it says that it's 10, di 10, diameters, 10 cubits across in diameter, and it says it's 30 cubits in circumference, you know? So in our modern mind, we don't need to go to that verse and say, oh no, it's 31.4, or it's 31, or it's 31.4, whatever the rest of the digits are, you know? Uh, we understand that that, that passage is giving a, a, you know, an estimate, and it's rounded off to the 10th number. Um, Grudem also clarifies, so inerrancy, inerrancy addresses truthfulness, and the Bible can still speak in ordinary, everyday speech. Grudem also clarifies that um, the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. I'm not going to spend as much time here, but I can talk with you more about this afterwards if you're interested. Um, this, again, this goes back to what Aaron was pointing out. Sometimes in the Gospels, you'll see different characters using slightly different words, right? And we, we, don't, have to, um, we don't have to, inerrancy does not require that all of those words be precisely recorded in just the same way, uh, right? We understand we can communicate with one another and said, oh, this person said that or this person said that and not uh, have it be precise in order to be true because inerrancy is about the truthfulness of scripture. The Chicago Statement, again, helpfully clarifies, saying, we deny that it is proper to evaluate scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose, right? So that's another way of saying we don't, we can't bring our own standards of precision to the text that are, that are different than what the authors were intending to do. They say, we further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena or stuff such as a lack of modern technical precision, pi, for example, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the sunrise, the reporting of falsehoods, when Ananias and Sapphira lied, scripture reports lies, um, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, like Jesus' temptation, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, like in the Gospels, or the use of free or loose citations. So that's one kind of error that we can make in coming to the text. I don't know how much farther we're going to get. Any questions about that one? <laughs> yeah, Jim. Yeah. So the question is about how we read scripture, whether we read it literally or something other than literal. Um, so we, we, the one basic way to explain that in shorthand is that we read scripture on its own terms. We read scripture on its own terms. And so, um, you know, when Jesus uh, reads Genesis, he seems to be reading it historical. Again, Matthew 19, he, he says that in the beginning, God made them male and female. So he's reading Genesis as history. All right, so we, we shouldn't go back to Genesis. Some people do this, but I think it's a wrong way to read Genesis. Some people go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 figuratively or poetically. Well, I don't think Jesus reads it that way, right? So we want to read it on its own terms. And so, you know, there's different genres in Scripture. Sometimes there's a letter. Sometimes there's obvious imagery. Uh, sometimes there's poetry. There's different things going on in we want to read it on its own terms, right? And not bring our own assumptions or expectations to it. Does that, does that help address the question? No. All right, another kind of mistake that could be made is to assume that these doctrines, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, mean that we must have a Bible that is perfect in every way and upon which we cannot improve. That... that 
that, uh, to make an assumption that these doctrines mean that we must have a Bible that is perfect in every way and upon which we cannot improve. In other words, some would reason that this view of Scripture, which we happily affirm, requires a version or an addition that is the perfect standard by which all others would be judged. Or we might assume that if we have a Bible that could be better, that somehow we don't believe in inspiration or inerrancy. But this isn't the historic position that Christians have taken. It's, it's not the position that is articulated in our statement of faith. Rather, we understand that inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility apply in an absolute sense to what was originally written, and then in a relative sense to every copy and translation of those original writings. So that is to say that our copies and translations are inspired, inerrant, and infallible to the degree that they reflect what was originally written. And so we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, but for now I want to note that that every copy and translation of the Bible that, that we've ever had has gone through updates and revisions and corrections. Copies of the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek, you know, again, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, and I had some photos of these, you can see in those copies, sometimes a scribe would be copying and then they would make a mistake, and sometimes they would catch it, and sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, there's a very interesting manuscript in the Greek where the scribe caught what he was doing and drew a line through it, uh, and then tried to correct it above and then ran out of space and then just kind of started over underneath. Um, there's a Hebrew text that's like that too. I've got a photo of it where they, they wrote a word and it was wrong, and so they crossed it out and they wrote the correct word above it. So sometimes they caught it and, and sometimes they didn't, and in future copies of that, they would, they would try to make corrections in the original. Translations, ever since we've been translating scripture, there have been corrections and updates. The Latin Vulgate, which is the Bible that... The Roman Catholic Church used for hundreds of years, even though it wasn't authorized until the 1500s. We'll talk about that later. Um, but that went through several editions and revisions and updates. Um, the King James Bible has gone through revisions and updates and corrections over the, the 400 years that we've had it. And modern translations also change. Modern translations have committees who periodically review uh, the translation to update and revise the text based on just developments in our understanding of, of our language and of the languages of the Bible. So I've given some examples of this, uh, of this principle uh, in your handout from the translators of the King James from their preface. Uh, at some point in this class, I wanna, um, I'll have a copy, an edition of the translator's preface. You can find it online for free. Uh, but I'll, I'll have a copy for you. It's very, very good. Um, and I have some quotes in here from uh, the King James translators to just show you that they understood uh, that their work uh, was, uh, that they had revised their own work multiple times and they expected that that would happen again. When they wrote, um, many people were criticizing the translators of the King James for a lot of reasons. Uh, there were many people who who were accusing them specifically for altering and amending their translation. And they responded to that in various ways. A lot of that accusation was coming from the Pope. You know, the, the Pope didn't want the, the Bible to be translated out of the Vulgate. The Vulgate was the official language that was uh, the authorized version of the Bible was in Latin. And so the Pope didn't want them translating and didn't want them changing things. And so one of their responses was to just say uh, publicly and kind of to the Pope, 
uh, hey, the Vulgate has been changed many times. The Vulgate has been updated and, and edited. Uh, and so they say, so all the while that our adversaries, I'm talking about Roman Catholics here, do make so many and so various additions themselves and do jarred so much about the worth and authority of them, they can with no show of equity challenge us for changing and correcting. So they're just saying that the Vulgate's been updated many times and so it's not appropriate for Roman Catholics to accuse the, the Protestants, which is who uh, were translating the King James, of making changes to the, their translation. Putting it positively, say, putting it positively, they say, if we will be the sons of truth, we must consider what it speaketh, uh, talking about God's word, and trample upon our own credit, yea, and upon other men's too, if either be any way an hindrance to it. So they're saying we're not afraid of, of updating these things because what matters is what the Bible says, not what, what we say. And so if our pride or somebody else's gets in the way, you know, what should speak loudest is God's word and the truth. They go on. They say, neither did we disdain to revise that which we had done and to bring back to the anvil that which we had hammered. They're talking about their translation. But having and using as great helps as were needful and fearing no reproach for slowness nor coveting praise for expedition, we have at the length through the good hand of the Lord upon us brought the work to that pass which you see. They talk about how they're going back again and again to update uh, their work and to revise it. I have an example of what they talk about next, a slightly different uh, concern or accusation that was leveled against them was that they were, um, that they had notes in the margin that gave other possible translations of the text. Don't worry, I'm going to zoom in. What you're looking at is, uh, if you go to kingjamesbibleonline.org, they have, this is an original copy of the 1611 version of the King James Bible, and you can search it completely. Uh, so what they're talking about is, it, I kind of went to random, at a random passage, I chose Romans 1, because that's what Pastor John's starting to preach. You can see in the margin here, I'm trying to zoom in, they have other possible translations. So here, in verse 4, it says, and declared to be the Son of God with power. Um, and they have a, a cross by declared, and then in the margin they say, or in the Greek, that GR means in the Greek, that could be translated determined. So it could be declared or it could be determined. I realize this is really small for you guys. Um, in verse 5, they have these two parallel bars. It says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. And then in the margin they say, or it could be translated to the obedience of faith. Um, and that's not a huge difference, you know, but it, it gives a slightly different sense. And they were being accused for having different possible translations in their margin. It says, um, they say in their preface, some peradventure would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin, lest the authority of the scriptures for deciding of controversies by that show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. So again, this is what they're saying. Is they're saying, some are accusing that if you put another possible um, translation in the margin, that you're somehow undermining the authority of Scripture, uh, and you're showing uncertainty about the text. They say, but we hold their judgment not to be so sound on this point. Uh, they say, they that are wise would rather have had their judgments at liberty in differences of reading than to be captivated by one when it may be the other. 
And then finally, they, they reference uh, Augustine, who said that the variety of translations is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the scriptures. So diversity of signification and sense in the margin, where the text is not so clear, must needs do good, yea, is necessary, as we are persuaded. All that to say, to make this one big point, that um, inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration do not require us to have an edition or a version of the Bible upon which we cannot improve in any way. Um, they understood that a variety of translations was helpful. I didn't know this until going to the Museum of the Bible this last week, but King James himself in 1630 published his own translation of the Psalms. Uh, King James was a really good scholar. We'll talk more about him later in the class. And he knew Hebrew and Greek really, really well. And he published his own translations different than the King James version uh, of the Psalms. Um, the last thing I'm going to mention, just very briefly, I hope this will be a profitable thing for us to think about, is mistake number three, is that we must guard our hearts from doubting the reliability of God's word. This is why we read Genesis 3 at the beginning of the class. This is what's going on in Genesis 3. The original sin came from Satan cynically questioning God's word and saying to Eve, is this true and is it reliable? That's how Satan was undermining and attacking Adam and Eve by attacking God's word and saying that it wasn't trustworthy. And that's the same way he attacks Jesus in Matthew 4 by trying to get him to doubt God's word and what God had said. So questions that we can think about and take away, these are provided for you in the handout, are to think what ways are we tempted to doubt God's word? And what can we do to strengthen our faith in God's word? This is how we fight temptation in our own hearts by trusting God's word to be true and reliable. It is a good guide for us in this life. I'm going to conclude by reading Psalm 119, and then we'll dismiss for the sake of time. If you want a handout of the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, it's in the back. If we run out, or if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to talk to me after class. I'll stay up here for a bit. I'm going to close by reading Psalm 119, verses 9 through 12. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. Amen. You are dismissed.